Well, good morning. It is a joy to be with you here this morning and to be able to open God's Word, um, to hear what it has to say to us this morning from a text that may be very familiar to some of us, um, but I believe God has a fresh word for all of us today um, as we seek to have the ears that Jesus talks about to hear uh, the truth of his word. So I'm going to open us in prayer. We're going to begin. Gracious God, in these next moments, would you allow the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts to be pleasing in your sight? For you are our rock, you are our redeemer, you are the help of the helpless, the hope of the hopeless, the friend to the friendless. Father, we ask that you would give us ears to hear this morning, that you would take the seed of your word, plant it in our hearts, that it may take root, that it may bud and blossom and bear fruit for the glory of your name and your kingdom. And these things we pray in your name. Amen. So this past Tuesday, February the 4th, marked the 58th anniversary of the grand opening, official opening of St. Jude Children's Research Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee. Um, It opened its doors officially 58 years ago this past Tuesday on the 4th. Uh, And what's interesting about this is how this hospital came to be. Um, The founder of this hospital, his name was Danny Thomas. He was an entertainer. Um, He was popular in the 50s and into the 60s. But before he became an entertainer and had success, he had some struggles. He did not know where his life was going. And so he did something that was a little superstitious and very theologically flawed. But he went and made a bargain, if you will, with the patron saint of hopeless causes, St. Jude Thaddeus from the Roman Catholic Church. Now, as those of us who are in a Protestant, to his father, we pray to our that saints are not who we pray to. We pray to the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray to his father. We pray to our father. We pray to the Holy Spirit. We do not pray to others other than the Lord of glory. But as it is, Danny Thomas did that. And he said, if you will just give me direction and guidance, I will make a shrine to your name, St. Jude. And through a process, the end result was St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee. A place that became a haven over these last 58 years for many people who had hopeless causes. Many children and families who faced cancer, specifically the one that was known as all, um, and this leukemia, this disease that ravaged the bodies of these innocent children. This became a haven for hopeless causes. Now, as we look at today's text, we're going to be presented with some hopeless causes. But I want us to see that God is a God of hopeless causes. That there is no cause that's too hopeless for our Lord. So this passage begins with a scene that we're, we become familiar with in Mark. There's a great crowd crowding around Jesus right after he gets off a boat on the Sea of Galilee's shore. Um, he has been previously in the area of the Gerasenes, which was a Gentile predominantly area. And he cast the demon out of another hopeless cause, this demoniac who'd been hiding out in the tombs and screaming and suffering. And he heals him and the people are so freaked out. They say, just, just leave us. We don't know what to do with you. We have no context for who you are and what you can do. Just leave us. 
So Jesus gets it back in the boat and he goes back, it says to the other side of the sea, which is probably the northeastern shore back in the area of Galilee and Capernaum, Jesus's old stomping grounds, if you will. He goes back there and this crowd gathers around him. And we're told that a man named Jairus, Jairus, however you want to say it, Jairus is the pronunciation of the Greek, so go with it however you want to do it. But he comes to Jesus and we're told some things about this guy. He is the ruler of the synagogue. He's not a um, professional scribe like the scribes were. He is a layman whose job, he was in charge of the calendar, making sure whoever rabbi was going to come and teach was lined up and they knew what they were going to be teaching from and to take care of the facilities. We're told that he's the ruler of the synagogue and we're told his name actually. He's given a, a very specific role, maybe because Jesus may have taught in his synagogue before. Maybe because Peter and some of the others from that area actually knew the guy personally. But we're told a very specific person comes in and he is there pleading for Jesus to come and to heal his daughter. Now, he says, my little daughter, and Luke actually tells us that this is his only daughter. Uh, in Luke's account of this, of this um, episode that we see, we're told that it is his only daughter. In other words, he probably doesn't have a whole lot of hope of having daughter who's at death's door. Literally, there's a, there's a Greek colloquialism that means at death's door, eschatos eke. And he says, come lay your hands on her and heal her. And he falls down before Jesus, this official person who is there and has the clout at least to get cut to the front of the line through the crowd and get to Jesus when there's people thronging about Jesus trying to get him to heal their sick, themselves even. He has the clout to get to the front of the line. He says, come, please heal my daughter. And if you're a parent in the room, you know the pain that, it goes through, that you go through as you see your children suffer. Even if you're not a parent, if you've ever had someone near you suffering, sick, it's a challenge. It is a, it is a burden that we bear. Just recently, Kimber and I don't have a whole lot of parenting experience. We're coming up on one year um, here in March. But when, when Roland, our firstborn, who's about to be 11 months, a few, like last week, was sick with the flu, he was pitiful. I never experienced anything like this. He was pitiful. And I would have done anything to make him well. In fact, we took him to the doctor, not once, but twice, because we wanted to do everything we could to make sure he was well as soon as he could be. And here we have a man, very similar situation that we can relate to, coming and pleading on his face before Jesus to come heal his daughter. And Jesus goes with him. We're told that Jesus and his disciples and Jairus and the crowds <laughs> go along with Jesus. And as they're going, Mark interrupts the narrative to introduce us to another character. We have a first interruption where Jesus is there with the crowds and Jairus comes in. We have a second interruption when this woman comes. And we're not given her name. The only identity that she is given is her malady, her affliction, her sickness, her suffering. We're told in this text, we're told about her that when she comes, she said, it says that she had, had a discharge of blood for 12 years. Now, 12 years sounds like a lot. And this is probably an approximation, give or take some days. But if we were to take that math, it's simple math, y'all. But if we were to take that and put it in the, in the terms of days, this woman has been bleeding 
for 4,383 days. Puts it in a little bit different terms than just saying 12 years. 4,000 some odd days. We're not told that she is just doing this. We're told that she actually gets worse in the process. But here's what this means for her in this suffering. One, she is experiencing incredible physical illness, without a doubt. But she's also experiencing emotional illness, mental, I'm sure, and certainly social, because in Leviticus um, chapter 15, verses 25 through 31, we're laid out exactly this case. If a woman is bleeding beyond her menstrual impurity, here is what you do. If you're that woman, you stay in your uncleanness until the time is ended. And then you have seven more days. And then you go and offer your offering to the priest that you may then be clean, which means you can once again be part of God's assembly of his people. So what we know is this woman has been in public very little in the last 12 years. If she had a husband, he probably divorced her because that was allowed for any reason, really, in that tradition at the time. And she probably had no children. None are mentioned in the text. She certainly didn't have any in the last 12 years. And here she is, sick and isolated. But it's not the end. (laughs) She's broke. She spent all of her money trying to get well. It says she suffered much under many physicians and had spent all her money and was no better, but actually grew worse. Imagine the regret. Why did I, why did I go to another doctor? The last however many couldn't help. Why, why did I do it again? I'm broke. I have no hope. In this moment, this, she has no reason to actually believe that Jesus has anything better to offer her. If past is any teacher, she has absolutely no reason, practically speaking, to believe that Jesus can do anything different. And yet, we're told something here where the story takes a turn. It says that she had heard the accounts about Jesus. She heard she acted upon what she had heard. And throughout Mark's gospel, this hearing and then acting upon what, we, what is heard about Jesus or from Jesus is a mark of genuine faith and discipleship. Throughout Mark's gospel, it will be that way. And here she is, a woman's affliction, and she, this outsider, comes inside the narrative of Jairus, the insider, And she reaches out and touches Jesus' garment. Now, here's what's crazy. She doesn't have good faith, you guys. Like, she's superstitious. During this time, it was incredibly common for people to see healers and people that were even of great political and military might, like Alexander the Great. It was believed that they could just touch them or they would kiss their hand or something that they could have somehow their power conveyed to it. It's magic. It was superstition. And yet the little seed of faith that is in this woman drives her to go to Jesus. When really there was really nothing else that should have, it drives her to come to the Lord. And when she does, she reaches out and she touches him and it says, 
instantly, she knew. She probably was hoping, okay, I'll touch him, something will happen over the next couple of days, maybe I'll start to get better. But instantly, she knew that something had changed in her body. She knew the feeling that she had been feeling these last 12 years well. You get used to a certain way of feeling. Over 12 years, she knew how it felt in her body, and it was healed in an instant. And Jesus comes, turns around, says, who's touched me? And disciples kind of kind of give him this little snarky, sarcastic reply. It's like, Jesus, you've been around crowds before, man. Like, if you looked around, there's still a crowd. Everyone is touching you, Jesus. Anybody that can get near enough to do so is touching you. And you're sitting here saying, who touched me? Duh, Jesus. The disciples are essentially saying, like, come on, man. And yet Jesus isn't, isn't thrown off by it. He basically ignores it. And it says, the Greek actually says, he keeps seeking. <laughs> He's looking and looking and probably asking, was it you? Was it you? And we're told that the woman in fear and trembling comes and she falls now before Jesus and tells the entire story, the entire truth of what has happened. What she felt, what she thought, why she came. Something had changed. This woman who had come probably cloaked, not wanting anyone to know that she was there because she was unclean and by being around other people had the potential of making them unclean. In fact, she should have made Jesus unclean. But as Beth Moore preached on this text, she said, you can't make Jesus unclean. But Jesus did also feel something because there was a touch of faith that happened. All these other people are touching him. And yet he feels something when this woman does this. Why? Because there was a faith there that was different. I would argue that in this moment, she didn't just see Jesus as a means of her salvation, but as her salvation. There was no other hope. There's a lesson for us to learn here, and we'll talk more about this at the end, but there's a lesson for us to learn that until Jesus is the thing and the person that we're willing to forsake everything else for, there's, a, there's, a, there's an element that is missing to our faith. He has to be the only savior. There cannot be any other next to him, even in line behind him. He alone must be where we turn for salvation. I believe that is exactly what Mark is portraying for us in this text. And here we see Jesus look at her. He could have condemned her for breaking the Mosaic law because she did. But in breaking the Mosaic law, she came and was healed by Jesus. Had she had kept the law and been a, a box checker, like many of the, like the Pharisees were, like the scribes were, like possibly even Jairus was. She wouldn't have come. She would have stayed isolated in her home because that's what she was comfortable. That's what she had come to know. And she would not have come in faith. And Jesus looks on her faith and says, daughter. This is no mistake that Jesus uses that word. This woman in her faith, an outsider, is becoming an example of faith 
to Jairus the insider. Jesus always connects first with the outsider. Why? Because they are desperate. The religious insider doesn't need Jesus until he sees his need. But the outsider, the sinner, the one who knows they are sick, understands they have a need. And in faith, they are drawn to Jesus to meet that need. There is something for us to know. No checking of boxes. No coming to Sunday school. No coming to Bible study. No coming to worship service. No serving as a deacon. No singing in the choir can save us. It is only by grace through faith that we can be saved. And Jesus says to her, go in peace. Your faith has made you well. And no sooner has Jesus gotten these words out of his mouth than we hear a report that Jairus' daughter is dead. She's dead. The woman was hopeless cause number one. Here we have the second hopeless cause. She's dead. And the people say, what... Why bother Jesus anymore? Like he can't come heal her now. Why bother him? Maybe you've been there before. Maybe you get to a situation, it's like, why why bother the Lord with this anymore in prayer? Why offer this up to him at at this point? It's hopeless. And I would say if that's you today or if that's been you or if that is you at some point, we need to hear the words that Jesus speaks to Jairus. He says, do not fear, only believe. This isn't a request. It's actually a command that Jesus gives. It's the same command coming from the same person that told the storms in the end of chapter four to shut up. And they did. The same voice that uttered, fine, to the demons who went into the pigs just before this. Do it. And they do. This voice tells Jairus, do not fear, only believe. And I can't help but think in that moment, Jairus was even more confused. But somehow this text leads us to believe that he clung to some thread of hope and faith in that moment. Do I think his his fear just left him and was gone? I I see that's very hard to believe that he was completely free now of fear and uncertainty and even doubt. But in the midst of all those things, I believe he clung to some thread of faith that had led him to Jesus in the first place. In fact, the words that Jesus encourages him to do is don't go on worrying Don't go on fearing, but continue in faith. Continue believing that though there is a reality that's come, it's not the finality. In fact, Jesus, it says, ignores, depending on what your translation says, it may say he overhears or he ignores or he pays no attention to what they say. Jesus knew the reality that this girl had died, but it wasn't the finality. It wasn't the final word on her life. It wasn't the final word for Jairus and his family. Jesus yet had that word. And so Jesus goes, he takes Peter, James, and John. They show up, there's mourners, they're crying, they're wailing. I was, was the custom, this was a 
a cost for funerals basically in that day. Today we pay for certain things. Back then they would pay for mourners to come and lament the loss of a person. And they've already shown up probably because Jairus' wife has already said, she's dead. It's hopeless. Bring, bring the mourners. Let them come on. Let's get this process started so it can be done with. The pain that these parents must have been feeling. And Jesus shows up and he says, she's not dead. She's just sleeping. And he gets laughed at. Why? Because again, these mourners, they knew what death looked like. They weren't confused. They weren't like, oh, she's, there's still hope. There's, they knew what death looked like. Their job was to know what death looked like. And so they laugh at Jesus. They think they understand better than he does. And again, to pause, how often do we fall into that same thing? where We feel like we understand a situation, even our own situation, better than God does. It's a temptation, especially, especially in the face of fear, in the face of doubt, in the face of suffering, in the face of the brokenness that we all experience in this world. It is so easy for us to think we have a better grasp on the situation than God does. But just like Jairus, we have the opportunity to trust that God still is working, that he has a plan that's so much bigger than what we can even see or understand in that moment. And Jesus puts everyone outside and he reaches down and touches this dead girl, which again, by the way, if you're wondering, in Numbers chapter 19, it says you're not supposed to do that or you become unclean. But Jesus doesn't care. And his power goes into her, her uncleanness comes onto him. If you don't believe me, read 2 Corinthians 5, 21, where it says that he became sin. He became our uncleanness so that we might become his righteousness. Jesus took on our frailties and our suffering to bring us healing. And here in this moment, he reaches down and says, Talitha kumi, I say to you, little girl, arise. And Tim Keller points something out that he did, he did a lot more historical research. He says, This is the position. He sits down. He comes right beside her bed where she is dead. And just like in the mornings, he takes her hand, probably as her mother or her father had done numerous mornings over those 12 years, those 4,000 something days. It says, little girl, it's time to wake up. There's an intimacy here that we see. There's an intimacy that's not unlike Jesus, who doesn't just let the woman slip away into the crowd, having gotten her miracle, but calls her out of isolation to be known, to connect with. And the little girl gets up, starts walking around, and Jesus says, go give her something to eat. (laughs) Her life is gonna keep going on. He says, don't tell anyone. Why? Who knows? It's Jesus. Like he knows perfectly why he says, don't tell anybody. Cause he just told the guy healed of the demons, go and proclaim to your friends and to everyone what the Lord has done for you. And it says he goes throughout the Decapolis and does so. But here Jesus says, don't tell anybody. How are you going to keep something like that a secret? I, I don't know how they did that. Maybe they listened to Jesus but he's just raised this little girl from the dead. And that's where our story 
ends with him saying, don't proclaim it yet. So what assurance does this text bring to us today? What, what do we have to glean and to understand from the situation that Jairus and his family find themselves in and the situation that this woman finds themselves in? I wanna give you a few quick things. Number one, all you need is need to come to Jesus. That's a Tim Keller line too, if you're, if you're wondering, and it sounds familiar. All any of us actually need to come to Jesus is a need. But it begins there. Desperation is the beginning of faith. The truth of the matter is, none of us, until we come to grips with the fact that we are sinners who have no hope of saving ourselves, can we come in faith to Jesus Christ. You can't come thinking you have everything figured out. You can't come without a need to Jesus and expect to receive his, his salvation. But all you need is a need. And here's the thing, all of us are needy. All of us are needy in different ways, but all of us are needy nonetheless. And all of us are needy in one way that is common to us all. And that is for spiritual life to breathe breathed into us. And only Jesus can offer that. All you need though is need. What a great thing. Had their needs been not so great, had Jairus, his daughter not been at the point of death, had this woman not have given up all hope, would they have come to Jesus? Maybe. But I believe in this circumstance, we see that their desperation is the thing that drove them to Jesus. And in faith that he could do something, they find healing. Pride is oftentimes one of the biggest barriers to our faith. But Jesus says, come to me with your need. Come to me with your need. But we have to know that we're needy. The second thing that I think this brings us assurance of is this. Jesus is not content merely to conjure. He desires to connect. Again, the woman could have just come, touched him, and slunk back off as she probably planned to into the crowds. But Jesus doesn't allow it. He keeps seeking her out to know who she is. We see an incredible display of Jesus' humanity and his submission to the Father in this. Because obviously, it's God the Father who has healed this woman in this moment. But through the power of Jesus, through his obedience, through his submission, and he has to know who it is. He's not satisfied just to allow her to sneak back off into isolation, having received her miracle. He desires a connection and intimacy, and he desires that from each and every one of us. Too often, too often, we come to God just wanting his stuff and not wanting him himself. Too often, that is the reality in my life. I just want God to do something for me. But God desires to connect with us at a deeper level, to draw us in faith closer to himself. And that's what we see in this woman's life. So first, all you need is need to come to Jesus. Second, Jesus is not content merely to conjure. He desires to connect. And third, it is not about who you are or what you've done, but who Jesus is and what he has done and is still yet to do. Jairus and the woman could, could really not have been much different, much more different, I mean. They, he's a man, she's a woman. He's an insider, she's an outsider. He is there 
because of his family. She is there with no family. He is socially respected. She is socially isolated and outcast. He is constantly in the synagogue and she probably hasn't been in the synagogue since his daughter was born. 12 years in both cases. They couldn't be much more different. Yet despite these differences, Jesus shows them both compassion and meets their need because they come to him in faith. It wasn't about what they brought to the table. It was what table they came to, the table of Christ, the table of one who could do something about their need. It's about coming to Jesus, believing that he will provide. And faith in Jesus means that the story is not over until our faith is made sight. Jesus' reference to the girl as sleeping is a foreshadowing to us. Not only that Jesus would be the one who would die and rise again, but to all of us, as Paul talks about, all of us who fall asleep will one day awaken when Jesus returns. Even death does not have the final word in our lives for those who come to Jesus believing in him. Faith in Jesus is not merely a temporary thing, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, especially in verses 19 and 20, when he says, if in this life alone we have believed in Jesus, if we have hoped in him only for this life, we are of all people most to be pitied. In other words, if we can only hope Jesus has something to say and do and heal in this life alone, what's the point? But he then in the next verse says, but Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead as a first fruit of those of us who will fall asleep in him. A first fruit, meaning he is an example. He is what we can look to to know what our end is gonna be like. Jesus Christ himself is the one who is the resurrected king and who will resurrect us who fall asleep but wake on the day he returns. But fourthly, it's not about the quality of your faith, but the quality of him in whom your faith is placed. Again, the woman's faith is superstitious. It's theologically flawed, but it drove her to Jesus. In that moment, the seed of faith in her life was that even in, this, even in spite of all the failures that had happened before her, for her, even in spite of all the previous failures, she believed that Jesus could succeed. And she comes to him. There was a quality that Jesus himself possessed that her faith never could. And the reality is for all of us, we all have an imperfect faith. None of us get it fully. <laughs> and if you do, you're wrong. If you think you do, you're wrong. None of us get it perfectly. But all of us, can believe in a perfect savior. All of us can come to him believing that he is perfect and that he is sufficient for our insufficient faith. If we will just come to him in faith, he is great and he can be trusted. Again, I don't think Jairus either was able to say that he had a perfect faith in that moment when Jesus commanded him, do not fear, only believe. I think Jairus was very much still struggling not to be afraid. 
very much struggling to believe, very much struggling in the wake of this tidal wave of news that his daughter has died, has come to him. And yet, I believe he clung to some thread that Jesus was still able to work. I think about the, the, the hymn that some of y'all may have grown up singing, may, have, may still sing from time to time, Just As I Am. And the verse that says, Though tossed about with many a conflict, many a doubt, fightings within and fears with la- without, but then the last line, the refrain, but O Lamb of God, I come. I don't come having all the answers. I don't come understanding even why this has happened. But I come trusting that you, O Lord, do. And that you are good and you have the final word. This is what we're drawn into. Craig Rochelle asked this question in his book. It's called um, Hope in the Dark, Believing that God is Good When Life is Not. He asked this question. He says, what if simply wanting to believe is the mustard seed of faith? You know, we, we all have times when believing is difficult. Faith is a, is a stretching exercise for us spiritually. We have opportunities to either turn to Jesus or to turn from him. But I think Craig Rochelle brings up a great point. What if, even in those moments when we don't know what to believe other than we, what we know is that Jesus says he's good and Jesus says that he loves us. And even if we can't see how that's even possible, what if just wanting to believe that in our darkest moments is the faith that Jesus says, that's the mustard seed I'm talking about. That is what I can cultivate and bring about to make it a giant tree that the birds nest in. I think that's what Jesus is drawing us into with these two people here that we see in this passage. And the last two things I want to say, one is this, how and when Jesus meets your needs will often not be how and when you would like them to be met. There is a sovereignty and a wisdom in our Lord that cannot be comprehended by us. I'm sure that if she had her way, this woman would not have bled for 12 years. I'm sure if Jairus had had his way, his daughter never would have become sick, much less would have died. Probably from his perspective, Jesus is having an ADD moment um, on the way to go heal her. Neither of these people would have chosen the path they were on. And yet, even in their brokenness, even in the waiting, even in the delay that leads to this girl's death, Jesus still shows that there is hope in him. Oftentimes, we will not understand what the wait is all about. Sometimes we'll be able to look back and understand it, but in the midst of it, it rarely makes sense. And yet, do not fear, only believe is what Jesus beckons us to grasp onto and to cling to with everything we have. But nextly, I want to say is these last two things. Jesus not only has power and authority over your suffering and pain, he knows and understands your suffering and pain. We don't, stay, we don't serve a God or believe in a God or pray to a God who sits high on his throne and doesn't relate to us. We, sit, we serve a God who left his throne 
and humbled himself to be as one of us and to suffer alongside of us. It's a very thing, important thing, I think, that we see that the, the word that is translated disease, at least in my ESV, talking about the woman, that word that is translated there in verses 29 and 34, that Greek word is actually the same word for whip or scourge, affliction. <laughs> Y'all, we serve a savior. We believe in a savior who relates to us, who he was whipped and he bled and he bled on a cross and died for us. It was his bleeding that for our sake, the father made him to, knew, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus would die trusting the will of his father that he would once again be raised. And in Isaiah 53, it tells us exactly this, that verse three of Isaiah 53 says, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds, we are healed. Jesus related to the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. He related to the girl who would die and be raised. He relates to you in the suffering that you experience today or yesterday or tomorrow. And he meets you there. He doesn't stand away from you. He enters in to your mess. He enters into your brokenness. He brings life. And from that, we can have hope that what Romans 8.18 says is actually true, that Paul says, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Unlike, the, the, unlike Jairus, who would have prevented his daughter from experiencing this sickness and death, we're told that God the Father was pleased to crush his son for our salvation. And a Savior who willingly steps into our sickness and steps into death is a Savior who we can find hope and faith and trust in. Which leads us to this last thing I want us to see. No matter how hopeless the cause, there is hope in Christ. All the laws about uncleanness in the Old Testament that we see on display in these two individuals, all those laws were there to show that no matter how hard any of us try, we can never make ourselves clean. The reality that the Bible teaches from cover to cover is that every single one of us is a hopeless cause. And yet there's hope in our King and our Savior. The reason Jesus came and lived and died was, and was raised is because there was no hope for any of us apart from him doing so. And today, no matter where you are at, no matter where you're at in your faith, whether it's the strongest it's ever been or so small you wonder if it's even there, 
Jesus is inviting you to act on what you have heard about him. The way Jairus did and the way this woman did. Jesus wants to draw you into greater intimacy with himself today. Whether it be for faith for the first time that he has paid your debt with his blood and with his death. Or faith that the reality of your current situation, no matter how hopeless it may seem, is not the final word. Wherever you are today, believe in Jesus. Come to him. He's seeking you. Be drawn by faith to him. Let's pray. Father, you are so gracious. You are so good. Lord, that even in the most hopeless of causes, there is hope. Yes, because Jesus can do something about our here and now, but even more because Jesus already has done something about our eternity. Jesus, we thank you that you enter into our suffering to bring healing. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you remind us that even when life is not good, that our God is. Father, as we sing, as we meditate on your word now, God, give us the ability to act upon what we have heard in a way that draws us into deeper intimacy with you today. Lord, thank you in advance for what you're gonna do. We praise things in your name, amen.